0: Our scripture this morning is Ephesians 1, 3, verses 3 through 10. And I'll give you a second to open your Bible and for me to adjust my glasses so I can see. Okay. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the ones he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us this the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The word of the Lord.
1: These are such big words. Not long, but important, big. Uh, So I'd like to just maybe reiterate the last couple of lines there from Ephesians chapter 1. Sometimes it rushes right by me, and I don't always quite hear it the first time it's read. Apostle Paul says that it's Jesus himself, with all wisdom and understanding that he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. There's an old story I I read this week from uh, the New York Times. It's of a man who many years ago purchased his first Rolls Royce. I'm still waiting to purchase my first Rolls Royce. (laughs) But as the story goes, he, he could find nothing in the advertising material or in the manual or even on the car itself that said what the power of the car is, what, how many horsepower it had. And so he made some inquiries, and he, and he learned that it was the policy of the Rolls-Royce company not to talk about the horsepower of their automobiles, but he was really curious, and So, and knowing that he'd paid quite a bit of money for this car, he wrote a letter to the company and asked them to provide him with that information. What's the horsepower? In a few days, a telegram came, so you know how old the story is. Telegram came, it was delivered to his house, and there was a single word answer in the telegram. Adequate. (laughs) (laughs) Adequate. At times, it seems that's the, the same answer that we're given in Scripture and in the New Testament for all that's going on there in the New Testament. Adequate. I always feel like there should be a, an ad campaign behind this good news that we talk so much about. Some high-volume sale pitch you know, to detail the power of the gospel. But no, we, we find that it's actually fairly subdued in a way. It's you know, not a lot of boasting, no real shouting, but rather the quiet confidence, a, a sureness, a, an ease almost with this confidence of who we are now in Christ and what really matters. Yeah, when they talk about their life in, in faith in, in New Testament times, You know, a life where they've they've come to trust God in a brand new way through through Jesus. They're experiencing God as, as loving and forgiving grace, as Jim described to us. They carry a tone of, well, adequacy. Even Paul says, your grace is sufficient for me. Well, it's more than that got to be imprinted somewhere on us. It's almost an understatement. You know, the things that Paul writes about here in the opening chapter of Ephesians, they're, they're universal in scope. It's, it's huge. So these claims it seems they should be chiseled on monuments or marble someplace, recited in, in our hearts as we gather for worship. Ephesians, <laughs> it's the place that we go, I think, when we need to remember what it is that has drawn us into this life of faith. When we need to be assured of our place in the cosmos. When we need to remember who we really are and to what lengths God has gone to reveal our place in his heart of hearts. And I should be shouted, We've been thinking quite a bit over the last month or so about how our faith spurs us to live beyond our fears. This fear that we're focusing a little bit on today is this idea of being out of control. The fear of, of life going a, a bit haywire. To live in a world that's a little bit chaotic. The desire for control, some have suggested, is a source of most of the problems in our lives and the lives of those around us. In fact, one scholar writing about this said, watch out for the fellow who talks about putting things in order. Soon he'll want to control you. It's a deep theological problem. It seems with desiring to gain control over our lives is this potential to come away believing that we really are sovereign over our lives. That we really can control our lives somehow. Maybe you've seen this. Jill, your OCD is out of control. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I do. Get all the piles in perfectly rounded shapes, color coded by order. Get everything in its place. Get it right. Not only the leaves, but all the rest of it too, right? Then all will be well. Yet if it's mine to order, well, either I determine that I hold the keys to my own life, or there's never really a day that goes by that I don't fear that something is remiss and that it's not going well. But then there's a reign of real terror that's rooted in this self-founded life, realizing that we are just not very good at maintaining it at all. Cindy and I have been kind of uh, knowingly chuckling as grandparents this week. (laughs) We heard the story of how our oldest daughter, who um, left her three mostly elementary-age children, She left them at home in Colorado last weekend, flew out to California to take care of her younger sister, our youngest daughter's three, mostly toddler, four, two, and one, I believe, aged children, for that long weekend while she went and did her Air Force Reserve weekend, and her husband was away too. So she left her kids, went to take care of her sister's kids, and we got to hear the stories. (laughs) It seems it was three days of little control. <laughs> First, there was dinner. Little Allie apparently protesting that I get three carrots when Melissa put four carrots on the plate. Then it was bedtime and going to the bathroom, and Melissa, poor Melissa, saying, Pull up your pants, and only to hear they're not pants, they're jeans. Who knew? They'll pull up your your pants, she would say. They're jeans. Well, jeans are pants. No, they're not. These are jeans. And on it goes. Some of you that have two-year-olds probably know that conversation. It all ended with poor poor Auntie Melissa. The weekend even included this infamous line, You're not my mommy. (laughs) I think she was actually glad to go home to her own three kids. From the very beginning, God introduces humanity to this notion of a life under the mysterious will of God. Instead of one of self-rule or self-management, roam the garden, they were told. Tend it, keep it, enjoy it. Let's do this together. But they couldn't live with that kind of mystery and thought they could manage it somehow better on their own. There was that subtle pull to control it all. So we do. And Paul, he, he so eloquently writes of this mystery of living with God, of God being now made known in Christ. And we come across this idea that there's a stability in that. There's a order in this cosmos that comes through God in Christ, a God who is there, has been there, and promises to be there in the future. You know, Paul, he, he looks out over all of history, his own history, and you know, universal history, he takes it all the way back, and he, he sees something really significant, and that is a choosing, a grace from, from God from before recorded time. I think it's kind of interesting to look at that city of Ephesus, these people that he wrote this letter to originally. It was a place that was in a tangle of confusing interests, this Greco-Roman web of mythical gods and tyrannical rulers, a great ancient port city, Ephesus, on the Mediterranean. One of the wealthiest cities... On the coast there, with a long history of being a center for learning and culture and the arts. It's said that even in ancient times, the streets were lined with these oil lamps, and they led to the uh, the temple of Artemis, this cultish god, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is a rendering of what it was to look at. It was actually never completed. Before it was completed, it was uh, flooded, and then sometime later, actually burned by arsons. But even still, in its incomplete state, it was a shrine to the wealth and the cult-like culture of that time, Ephesus. When Alexander the Great came to power about four centuries before Jesus, it was said that he offered to rebuild this temple, of Artemis. But the Ephesians refused him his, this offer, claiming that it was not right for uh, one god to build a temple for another god. So you can get a picture of what was happening in that time, this confusion of loyalties. Some centuries later, about a century before Jesus was born, Rome inherited the, the region in the city of Ephesus. And they brought with them a heavy tax on the people. The people of Ephesus rebelled. And so Rome sent its armies and sacked the city, just stormed in and and wiped it out. And so by the time Paul arrives, late first century, the air that surrounded him and the young church there in the city was very heavy with dissension and chaos, violence. There was so much uncertainty. One scholar described this period of time in Ephesus history saying that to the Jew, the Roman or the Greek sol- Greek was an idolater. And to the Roman, the Jew was an atheist who refused to acknowledge the gods or the divine authority of Caesar. It was all out of control. Hostility was thick. So when this turbulent air all exploded in the the Jewish rebellion in, in 66 AD, the Romans immediately followed with this bloody, violent, horrific war, late first century. Most scholars think that this is the setting that Paul first visited and then also wrote to. This political crisis, this culture coming apart, that prompted him to write, as he wrote to the Ephesians. And so it's no wonder that he uses this cosmic, historical kind of language with the Ephesians. Speaking of all those years and all that history of chaos and fear, he wanted to assure them in the midst of all that that God is God. That that when we begin to fear, there's nothing but uncertainty. When we think it's kind of all on us to make sure the piles are straight and neat and tidy and color-coded that then God is there. He gives us, I think, three really critical assertions in this short little text in Ephesians 1. The first thing I, I hope you heard is that you are chosen. That you are chosen by God before the creation of the world. In the immediacy of time and place, your life, my life, all that's involved in all of that, it's easy to forget the scope of God's sovereign and complete love. And so he begins just by saying, blessed in the heavenly realms, you are chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. Jesus had already said. He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Grace, again. Such full adoption. It's meant to settle our hearts, to give us place and belonging and security and standing and destiny, that we stand on something solid and full. Thomas Merton once asked the question, Who am I? And went on to answer his own question, saying, I am myself a word spoken by God. Do you have that sense? In the midst of whatever change and chaos that you may be experiencing, that you are a word spoken by God, chosen by God before the creation of the world, I don't really understand all of that. But I do have a sense that we are eternal beings. That God has something to do with us, not just today, but forever. Chosen before creation. Blessed in the heavenly realms. Paul goes on to say that it's Jesus who reveals the mystery of God. With all wisdom and understanding, he, meaning Jesus, made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. I think that's Paul's way of saying that when our lives seem to be shrouded in confusion and disorder, that it's really no mystery at all. What it's all about. It's about what God has made known to us. That This is, I think, his great reference to the incarnation, really, that That's happened. There's been this extraordinary kindness that has been visited upon the world, and we see it in the man Jesus. We see God. That's the mystery revealed in Jesus himself, this this gift Paul wants us to know, this extravagant or lavish, he uses this word, free to us but costly to him, gift of saving love. Paul would go on at other times to say things like, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He wants us to know that this is the mystery revealed right here. What does God want for us? How do we operate in this world? We'll look to him. That's where it is. Then he says something right at the very, very end of that section in verse 10, that trusting Christ brings cohesion into our lives. And it's Paul's great management word. You know, when things feel like they're just falling apart and they're just not where they should be, he uses this building word, this management word. It's his big thought, I think, for people who lived in a time of upheaval and mystery and uncertainty, those who fear losing control. And so Paul said there is cohesion in Christ. All things come together. In Him. That's really literally what it means is the the house is built. It's a house building word. It means the house is built in Him and it holds together in Him. One commentator put it like this He said, All the conflicts, all the discrepancies, all the diverse strands, all the loose ends, all the estrangements are to be united in Christ. Christ brings cohesion. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Here he is. This is my friend David Etheridge. He's uh, one of the the 13 guys in this group that gets together once a year uh, that I've been meeting with for over 30 years, or about 30 years, I guess. We met in seminary. And we get together that once a year, except for this year. In fact, this week, I get to see him again. He's coming from Virginia to Salt Lake. Just coming to spend a weekend here and he's coming to church. <laughs> so you'll see him too. I've asked him to come and uh, share his story with you next Sunday a little bit. So I wanted to give you a little update and it just fits so well into what Paul is saying about all things coming together in Christ. <clears throat> Dave Etheridge, he, he's a uh, You're the best sort of southern gentleman from Virginia. He's kind and considerate, self-effacing, polite, almost to a fault. (laughs) He'll do things like fly across the country to spend a weekend with the people in his life. The other thing to know about Dave is he's dying. He's got cancer a very aggressive and rare form of it, apparently, and it's taking his life from him. He's been through all the medical treatment. He's had surgery and chemo and drug treatments. It's slowed the growth, but not stopped it entirely. And So a year ago, he resigned, took a medical disability from his Presbyterian church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he's been visiting people this last year, not knowing how much time he has. I'm really anxious for you to meet him. (laughs) He's the person that we're talking about today, the person whose life kind of came off the tracks, lost control, didn't know where it was going to go or how it would come to an end. But you'll, you'll hear, you'll see that he's settled in this revealed mystery of Christ. You'll see that he, he lives his life from a, a different place, that, that he's got this true belief that he's blessed in the heavenly realms, that he's chosen by God, an adopted son. He'll want to talk about Virginia, but he'll also want to talk about who he is in Christ. He's the guy that signs his emails with words like this this week. He said, I love each one of you and cherish our friendship and the glorious grace that gives us that common eternal bond, our precious Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. When's the last time you signed a letter like that? <laughs> and those aren't just church words to him, he really means it. I think you'll like him. Dave, he's a guy that lives in that cosmic eternal now that Paul wrote so much about. He's going to tell you his story, so I'm not going to spoil it all, but he is the guy I aspire to be when I fear the disorder of all things, because he truly believes that, that Jesus holds all things together. He's proof, as one man said, that you are what you love, and he loves his Lord. He loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind if he can't with his body. Even when all else is in a state of flux. And fear would, would, would be the logical response. He seems to have gone beyond fear. You'll see that he is what he loves. And he loves his Lord. Eugene Peterson as you know, rephrases things. This is how he put it, the end of Ephesians chapter 1 there. He said that God thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need. Let's read this together. Letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making, he set it all before us in Christ, a long-range plan, in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. Is that adequate? We should shout it from the housetops. It should be chiseled in granite that God thought of everything. Everything. It is this news which should carry our hearts, especially when we desire to bring this world and our lives under some semblance of control. This great mystery that is ours in Christ. The good news, when so much seems uncertain. From the very creation of the world, God has been ushering time on. Not always in a straight line, but in an ongoing story of belonging and chosenness, grace, and love. And all will be revealed, and all is being united in Jesus, whom we are called to love. And we discover that we are what we love. Amen? Amen. As our worship team comes forward. Let me just say a prayer for us. Lord, I give thanks for the people in my own life that show us that we are your people, blessed from the heavenly realms. May we love you in such a way that we truly become That which we love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we prepare to come um, to the communion table.